Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. For tuning into this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Catherine Stewart. Her newest book is The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. For too long, she argues, the religious right has masqueraded as a social movement preoccupied with a number of cultural issues such as abortion and same-sex marriage. In her deeply reported investigation, Catherine Stewart reveals a disturbing truth. This is a political movement that seeks to gain power and to pose its vision on all of society. America's religious nationalists, she argues, aren't just fighting a culture war. They're waging a political war on the norms and institutions of American democracy. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Catherine Stewart. Catherine, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. You wrote a book recently called The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. Now, it's interesting... You tell a story in the beginning of the book where your consciousness kind of is awakened, where there's this th- these things called the good news clubs, where um, evangelical Protestants are looking to have Bible studies for children, like you know Bible school, Bible camp. But what was interesting to you is they wanted to have it in the public school, like they they had church space all around the school, but for them it was really important that they have it on the campus grounds, and and you, this kind of is giving you the willies, and it opens up a whole kind of consciousness for you, right? That's absolutely true. I started learning more about the rise of the religious right as a political force when a good news club came to my kids' public elementary school. We were living in Santa Barbara, California at the time. um, And good news clubs, as you probably know, are designed to convert very little children in their earliest years of learning into a really deeply fundamentalist form of Christianity, I was really astonished to learn that there were thousands of these um, clubs operating in public schools nationwide. And the children attending the clubs were really confused by them. I mean, anyone who's had little kids uh, knows very well that little kids in their earliest years of learning cannot make this distinction between an activity in their public school and one that's sponsored by their school. They think if it's happening in the school, it must be what the school wanted them to believe. So here's the thing that really tipped me off. We were uh, in a public school district shared with Westmont College, which is one of the best, I think, evangelical colleges in the country. And all of my sort of, you know, school mom friends were affiliated with uh, Westmont. They were Westmont moms or they were professors themselves. And when you say that there's a difference right between there, if you went to Westmont and pulled, I I mean, I, I have friends that went there and have taught there. Yeah, most of the, most of the faculty would not have supported Donald Trump. Well, it's very most, diverse in terms of their right. theological. I mean, right. they all have to sign a statement of faith, but very you know went to different kinds of churches. Uh, diverse in terms of their politics. Most and of them would not believe in six day creation, or I mean, these are people with PhDs no. from Ivy League institutions that are there. I mean, it's it, it's, it's 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 very different, right? Than 
the kind of fundamentalism you're describing. I mean, it's a different kind of um, Christianity than 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 what you're describing mostly in the book. I mean, these are a kind of more moderate, pious, passionate people, but also with a kind of they've made they've made some kind of peace with late modern democracy. Right. And a lot of them were sending the kids, their kids to a, a public school, a 200 kid public school is in this really beautiful area. And there was an evangelical church literally next door to the church. So some of the Westmont parents, Westmont moms, they got together. This is what really tipped me off. They got together with the, the leaders of the Good News Club. And they said, you know, we are also Christians and we believe in the Great Commission as you do too. But we just don't think you're quite right for our school. Because, you know, we have this little, very sweet school and everybody gets along with everybody else. So we'd like to offer you free space at the exact same time in the Montecito Covenant Church, which was literally, I don't know, 40 feet away from our public school, literally next door. And the Good News Club leaders declined. They insisted on being in the public school. So that's really what tipped me off. It's the fact that they were offered free and better space. I mean, the Montecito Covenant Church has got to be one of the prettiest churches in the country. And, um, you know, I'd like to go there after school. And uh, and um, But they really wanted to be in the public school. And also, I started to hear stories around this time from friends whose kids went to other schools where Good News Clubs had been established. And kids attending the clubs were doing what I could only describe as targeting other kids who were either not Christian or perhaps didn't go to the quote-unquote right kind of church. They were getting targeted for faith-based bullying and bigotry. And they would say to the kids, like, I know it must be true, the religion, the good news club, they would say, I know it must be true that you're going to go to Jesus, go to hell without Jesus. Uh, I know it's true because they taught to me in school. And they don't teach things in school that aren't true. And this really got to the heart of my problem with good news clubs. I don't have a problem with kids talking about their religion in public schools, or um, I don't have, um, you know, there's a difference between criticizing the political actions of religious groups and criticizing Christianity or criticizing religion itself. But I do have a problem with um, a, a group that is, A, you know, getting subsidized by our public schools by planting its uh, Bible study there, basically for for free or next to free and be confusing above all confusing little kids into thinking that their school supports the club so um you know that sort of i started looking into the good news club and i started looking into the sort of legal um preconditions for them being allowed to enter public schools it was all thanks to this 2001 supreme Supreme Court decision called Good News Clubs versus Milford Central School. And I sort of fell down this rabbit hole. And I started to realize that, you know, Good News Clubs are really one part of a larger attack on public education. Um, that's a sort of reflects a longstanding hostility to public education by the um, religious right. And then the attack on public ed is much uh, p- part of a much larger attack on America, really, as a modern constitutional republic. Now, okay, so you're you're out there by Westmont College, and you've got these kind of Westmont connected moms who, who they're not comfortable with it either. Are you like? Can you just tell me a little more about this evangelicalism stuff? I mean, are you sitting there outside waiting for your kids going like? Can you just like? Is some of your research anecdotal with the other parents? Are you kind of like, hey, can you just help me? 
figure this out a little bit? You mean, did I speak to other parents at the time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. People that you knew probably had yes. an in, insider track on conservative they Christianity. Did. It, it's absolutely true. You know, I had a friend, um, she was probably my best friend there at the time. She was, we went on regular walks. She described, she she was very conservative, um, very, uh, she described herself. She said, you know, fundamentalism is really attractive to me. You know, she was, um, you know, I would just drop her. She was conservative evangelical. She was one of the women who met with, one of the moms who met with these Good News Club leaders. And she recognized that this really wasn't going to be right for our school because, look, public schools um, are necessarily diverse. They serve a diverse public. I mean, in our public school, we had Episcopalians, we had Catholics, we had evangelicals, you know, the spectrum from A to Z. You know, there's an evangelical spectrum. Um, and uh, we had, you know, Jews, we had um, uh, a couple of Muslim families, we had members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. One of the parents who, um, I don't want to identify her religion, but it's a religion that tends to get a lot of negative um, uh, pushback, uh, negative press. She said, can you imagine if we were doing this, it would be all over the national news. And I felt uh, really bad for her. I mean, there were so many people who were upset about this and, uh, you know, father from a country torn apart by needless religious wars wrote these sort of poignant letters to the principal saying, I can't believe this is happening here in America. So neighbor, neighbors started to sort of fight bitterly over the appearance of a good news club. And here's the thing, the good news club leaders were kind of told about this and they actually seemed kind of happy about that. They seemed like they were sort of having, um, you know, they liked the attention, they liked the division. And it was hard for me to wrap my head around the fact that division on public school campuses is really part of the point of establishing one religious group sort of commandeering a public resource and forcing its way in. There weren't other religious groups doing this. I mean, it would have been considered incredibly rude. You know, I think a lot of my experience, and this is something kind of personal, I grew up in a really multi-religious neighborhood where we all, sort of religion was always, you know, shared with friends and we invited one another to our um, religious um, uh, uh, celebrations. And, but the, I, and it was like a, you know, there was a a lot of Jews, Catholics, um, uh, Protestants of various types, um, some Russian Orthodox, but the idea of any particular religious group forcing its way into the public school, I mean, just would have been unimaginably rude. And I thought, you know, this is a cohort, the, the sort of so-called values voters that were all under Trump, they describe themselves as supporting small town values and yet, and, and, and supporting the family. And yet they're engaged in this initiative that's tearing apart neighborhoods, that's, you know, igniting needless religious wars on public school playgrounds. It's so unneighborly and it's, and they're treating families that don't like look like theirs with contempt. Yeah. And one of the things I think that you point out that is interesting, you're like, look, this isn't about somebody I want to talk about the abortion stuff a little bit later, but you see, this isn't okay. about this isn't about abortion or this issue or people want to get people to Jesus or this or like it's not about any single issue. It's a constellation of kind of values or 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 kind of convictions that really are like, look, this place is too pluralistic. It's too. I mean, I just want to read something from your book that I thought was incredibly well said. You talk about. Um, just you know, the, 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 you know how modern life can be kind of stressful, and there's a lot of change and technological technological change and climate instability and this stuff. 
And you see, the price of certainty is often the surrendering of one's political will to those who claim to offer refuge from the tempest of modern life. The leaders of the movement have demonstrated real savvy in satisfying some of the emotional concerns of their followers, but they have little intention of giving them a voice in where the movement is going. I can still hear the words of an activist I met along the way. When I asked her if the anti-democratic aspects of the movement ever bothered her, she replied, the Bible tells us we don't need to worry about anything. And I, I mean, I think that's it's interesting because it seems like you're kind of honing in on the fact that, like, you know, with uh, living in a late modern democracy with lots of fluid economic borders and 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 lots of technological change and all, all sorts of, you know, it, it can lead to anxiety because things change a lot, right? And and this sort of uh, it, it's almost like the movement becomes a form of anxiety management. You give us, you see some control, and we'll make you feel safe. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, when you're looking at this movement, it really makes sense to distinguish between the leaders and the followers. Uh, um, you know, the rank and file are often believe they're fighting for things like, you know, uh, defense of the family as they, as they see it, or, you know, um, a sense of cohesion, you know, cultural cohesion or an, a ban on abortion and they want to save the babies. But, you know, when leaders of the movement are speaking in, to one another in the forms that they share and they're speaking or they're speaking to their political allies or especially to their funders, a lot of the, you know, um, uh, policy positions they're advocating are about money. It's like they say the Bible, you know, supports low taxes or no taxes for the rich. So they're really advocating for regressive tax policies that are going to intensify some of the existing economic and very widely documented economic inequalities in our society that um, end up creating anxious, you know, masses of people, you know, on all ends of the economic spectrum who really want a sense of safety and security and want a sense that their position in the world is is safe. So, um, you know, it's interesting, this whole issue of like defending the family, the uh, leaders of the movement are really um, have kind of abandoned uh, in some ways or, or betrayed what might have been their greatest, strongest suit. They're embracing these regressive economic policies that make it really hard for families to be sex- successful and survive and, uh, and be happy. Um, thinking about, you know, making it harder to access family planning and a lot of the economic policies, of course, that make life so stressful for, for parents. This is interesting. In Europe, right? these kind of nationalist movement, it's like national socialism, right? So you usually have to like, you pledge the people, you tell them immigration is scary and we got to close our borders, but then you promise them a bunch of government goodies. It's like, here, we get the nationalism without the socialism. Oh my gosh, it's really true. <laughs> you, just, so- you just preach the fear and the anxiety, <laughs> but, then, but, then, but then they're saying, and we're also going to cut taxes for the rich and kind of leave you guys behind, but hey, you're going to feel better about yourselves. <laughs> It's really true. You know, um, in one of the chapters of my book, The Power Worshippers, I go to Verona, Italy, to a gathering of the World Congress of Families, which is, um, they, they call themselves the global conservative movement. It's a sort of, they want to, they've declared war on global, what they call global liberalism, and what they call the secular elites, and want to basically create a network of, um, you know, ethno-nationalist states, faith-based ethno-nationalist states. And I was listening to one of the representatives from Eastern Europe talk about all the goodies that they were going to give to people who have large families. And it was like, I thought to myself, wow, if, if the most sort of wild-eyed socialist in America were to tout these, these uh, goodies, they would be like, you know, kicked out of the country, <laughs> you know? And yet here they're saying, you know, they're, well, they're, they're, they're advocating if you're a woman, you've had like 
more than three kids will buy you a car and you never have to pay taxes again and like all this other kind of stuff just to sort of um, increase the birth rate. Of course, there they say things like, you know, we will go extinct. I mean, there's always a, a we under threat and a they that's sort of attacking us, of course. So it's, it's but the, there are differences among different countries. And I just, I don't think we can sort of elide all of those differences. I, I've had David, Fr- I don't know if you know the name David French. He's a, of course I do. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Be, yeah. So he's a friend of the show. I mean, I've had him like probably like four times. He was just on last last week, I think. Uh-huh. And uh, he's become a friend. I love I love David. Uh, you know, we don't politically we're kind of from different parts. Of, but he's a great guy. But you know, he was saying something recently that he looks at the major distinction now is not between like conservative and liberal, but it's almost becoming liberal versus illiberal. Like if you really believe in liberal democracy and pluralism, and it's interesting because he is told even and he's an evangelical Christian and his reaction to this sort of transgendered story hour that everybody was erupting about in California. He's like, look, I'm an evangelical Christian, but like, look, if you're going to push the transgendered story hour out, like what, are, what, when you lose power, what are, are people going to push you out? And like the best thing we have for everybody's view is liberalism. Now the right jumped on him and called it Frenchism. And, and sort of a Maori who's a columnist for the post just said like, if we can't, if, if liberalism is leads to betrayal of our values and liberalism be damned. And I heard other conservatives say, well, I don't know what he's talking about. If he doesn't, David French is saying you have two things like, Persuade three things: a persuasion, argument, and legislation, and a liberal process. That's all you have. What are you talking about other than what Al Qaeda is talking about? If you're saying liberalism be damned, I mean, this is the interesting thing, right? It 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 really becomes not so much right left or religious diversity; it becomes liberal illiberal. Like, do we have a society where everyone has certain protected freedoms that you can't just majority rule away, right? Well, it's true. I think sometimes those issues, you know. Uh, require nuance. I mean, there are a lot of issues that require nuance, and there's gray area, and we could look at individual cases. But I mean, when you know, he's talking about that issue in particular. I think we have to note that issues around sexuality are clearly being used and channeled for political purposes. Like, I mean, this is what religious nationalist movements do around the world. Look at the homophobic policies in Russia, or. Um, uh, you know, certainly if he's mentioning the sort of transgender story hour, I mean, religious nationalist movements draw, and they're very good at this, they draw on anxieties, uh, sexual anxieties and so-called family issues, but they actively cultivate them. So let's look at the transgender bathroom issue as a case in point. It's a marginal issue. It's not coming from the grassroots. Um, children in school should be able to use uh, whatever uh, restroom they feel is, you know, uh, where they're safe and comfortable. But, you know, hyper-conservative religious leaders have turned this into a defining issue of our time. And their concern here has absolutely nothing to do with prevention of sexual harassment that largely does not take place in women's bathrooms in public buildings, but it's rampant on the street, for instance. And if they were concerned about the assault of women and girls, they'd focus on sexism, but they focus on the transgender bathroom uh, issues and things like that as a way to provoke a certain set of anxieties that c- they can then use to channel votes to their side. Yeah, I don't think I've ever had an issue going <laughs> in the bathroom. And I, and I think if I saw a trans person in the bathroom, I think you know, I, I you know that that would, I would have a great story at the end of the day. Hey, <laughs> so I, I, something really interesting happened to me in the bathroom today. This is really unique. Uh, yeah, no, I think it, one of the other things you talk about, which I think. Is an interesting thing that that so many people are unaware of because right now everything is based on abortion and and pro life 
pro-choice concerns. Oh, man. But, but yeah. it's not, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention, it was 72 or 73 when Roe versus Wade was decided, right? Like for a couple of several years after the Southern Baptist Church, Christianity Today, a lot of these people were pro-choice. It's not until 79, 80. Yeah, I know. Where, and it was based on segregation of schools, though, right? I mean, like Jerry Falwell and some other people were when they had these kind of segregation academies where after they integrated schools, you'd set up such and such Christian school. And the federal government was ruling that, well, you can't get federal subsidies if you're basically just a segregation academy, right? That's and right. and then so, so you'd kind of document how, well, okay, I mean, it's hard to say, hey, everybody, let's get a religious movement for racism. But you can't get one for abortion. That's (laughs) actually true. I mean, there's this fascinating episode where leaders of the new right, you know, the sort of intellectual movement that would become sort of today's Christian right, um, got together and basically went down a laundry list of these issues that they thought would unite their new movement. I mean, this is around, as you mentioned, 1980 or so, about seven years after Roe versus Wade. And abortion was not at the top of the list. Um, they were uh, especially motivated by what they saw as the unfair tax treatment of these racist academies. They were focused on Bob Jones University. Now, Bob Jones, remember, he gave a sermon in which he he called segregation God's established order. And he called um, uh, integration as satanic propagandists. And this is something that these Biblical literalists, hyper conservative. That, that, that guy knew how to take the fun out of fundamentalism. I mean, wow. Oh. <laughs> That's very intense. I know. I got a copy of that. You know, it's called it's Segregation Scriptural. So if you can find a copy of that um, that radio address that was then, you know, tra- um, written out, I mean, it's really unbelievable. It's really uh, unbelievably disgusting. Um, I mean, they were also really upset about the women's rights movement, civil rights movement. They kind of came down to abortion and they and Wyrick was like, wow, that could work. But you know what? Um, uh, and then pro-choice voices were gradually purged from the Republican Party because most Republican uh, Protestants at the time supported some form of abortion law liberalization. Uh, as you mentioned, the SBC hailed the decision. It was what they saw sensible middle ground. But so those pro- pro-choice voices were sort of shut out of the party and purged from it because leaders of the movement know very well, if you can get people to vote on one or two issues, you can control their vote. And so um, like at the last Values Voters Convention I attended, this is just this past year, Tony Perkins gets up on stage and like a bunch of young ladies push out these enormous um, cribs onto the stage. He's sort of opening up the Values Voters Conference, which, as you know, is like the annual gathering of these sort of um, activists organized by this right wing policy group, Family Research Council. So these cribs are filled with baby hats. It's like a stunt, but it's announcing at the start of this convention it's like his way of saying the issue that really matters here is abortion and just pay no attention to the right wing economic policies or these other other issues. I mean, he's they do sort of um, talk about those. But, um, you know, the, the issue of abortion is, you know, when they're talking to the rank and file, it's all abortion all the time. Yeah, that's interesting because it's different than a Pope Francis, right, who is, you know, in this Catholic tradition has a longer tradition of of anti-abortion things, but then talks about labor rights and environmentalism. And it's a different kind of feel than that, right? Because it's, it's almost like the abortion thing is sort of the, it's like, you know, when you, when you put peanut butter on, on dog medicine, right. To get your dog to take the dog <laughs> vitamin, right. You, you, you wrap it up in the abortion peanut butter and then it's, you, you swallow the stuff that's against everybody's economic interests, but you kind of, you get it, you know, you put the peanut, but that's the peanut butter, right. Right. 
Right. Yeah, but there's been a lot of pushback at any sort of efforts to uh, liberalize or reform um, sort of within the Catholic hierarchy. So I'm sure you've been following that as well. Yeah, it's interesting because you, so Matt, so you you still go to these. You, you tell stories where like you're talking about this guy is talking about this and why we can't surrender this, and you're like, uh-huh. and I'm eating chicken and steak and drinking my chocolate milk and yeah. So so like do you, like when you go to the, the with the values voters conference, like. Does anybody know who you are? Like, are they, are they like, are they like, oh my gosh, there's Catherine Stewart. Don't talk to her. You're going to wind up in the book. Possibly. I really don't know. Do you have any any drinking buddies who you're like, look, I don't like your national movement, but you're fun to have a glass of scotch with. I mean, are there like, are there like. I guess actually there, I mean, I have established what I would think of as a, a friendship with a couple of people within the movement for sure. I mean, I think. I think what, so does I always use look, what does that friendship look like? I mean, is it, I mean, do you, it, well, it, it, you know, it's interesting. I don't know if you read chapter four where I went, uh, this guy named Jim Doman, he's, you know, just one of the folks I focus on in one of my chapters. He's got this organization called church United. It's in California. He calls himself ex gay. He focuses on uniting um, conservative leaning pastors, uh, focuses uh, very heavily on pastors of color, Latino pastors. So in chapter four, I go, uh, he invites me, even knowing I'm an opposition journalist, um, he invites me out to attend one of his events. It's for uh, dozens of Latino pastors. And the leaders, sort of, this um, event was held in Spanish, in the Spanish language. And um, so the leaders sort of stood up of this event, it was held in this mega church, and they're like, you know, if you're talking to, um, you know, when you're talking to congregations about the minimum wage, what's more important? Talking about, you know, essentially they said, what's more important, a few extra dollars or life? So they're basically conveying a message to these Latino pastors that um, the issues that really matter to vote on. Here's the most disturbing part of that whole um event that I went to was all a sort of like getting the pastors on board so and then giving them like voter guides and access to what they call um uh culture impact team manuals and things like this all of these tools that they can use to turn out their congregations to vote for those hyper conservative candidates that the movement favors and they gave them all this frankly I thought it was a very misleading material and their um sort of a page of sort of combination of graphics and text and saying they're teaching this sex education in your kid's school. Listen, parents, this is coming and you're not allowed to opt out. Now, number one, you are allowed to opt out and many people do. Number two, none of the material, according to like the um, press uh, contacts or media people that I, I got in touch with in various school districts in California, none of the materials on that um, sheet of paper were taught in the manner that the sheet of paper was suggesting. So stuff that's it suggested it's taught at the kindergarten level. It's taught in the high school level where it might be appropriate, for instance. And then there are other graphics that were not taught anywhere, according to these um, the uh, the reps for the San Francisco Unified School District, for instance. She's like, that's not taught anywhere in any of our schools. So they use these kind of uh, tactics to sort of get these Latino pastors on board and frankly upset. You know, I'm, I'm a parent too. You know, I care about what my kids are taught in their public schools. And I was looking at the sheet of paper thing. Oh my gosh, this is really what they're learning. Um, and then, uh, you know, I had to check it out with these, uh, you know, uh, press reps for these school districts. So this is what they do. They, this is how they get them on board and get them, you know, to be part of their network. 
So the network was founded by this dude named Jim Doman. Uh, and uh, I published an excerpt of that chapter um, uh, when my book came out just last month. And, you know, he got in touch and we spoke about it for half an hour and spoke about issues of mutual concern. Look, he knows that I'm an opposition journalist. He knows exactly how I feel about the work that he does. Um, we've both affirmed that we believe in, you know, we'd like a secure and prosperous America filled with successful families. We just have really, really different ideas about how to get there, you know. But um, ultimately, you know, I, I really don't pull any punches when I describe the fact that this movement is deeply illiberal. It is uh, an authoritarian movement, in my view. It um, does not have much respect for um, the two-party system at all or the Constitution as it was written. Uh, I think it, um, you know, they, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, 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 a political movement and they really want to concentrate power in the hands of a new elite and uh, revise a lot of the ways in which our country is run. You have this chapter, chapter seven, the blitz turning the states into laboratories of theocracy. And this is something that I think you, you talk about that is sort of, I mean, it's, it's covered some places, but I think not enough people know about how basically one of the reasons, one of the ways that, that conservatives gain so much national power is working on state legislatures and kind of having these think tanks that kind of cranked out template legislation. So you're cranking it out in the mimeograph or whatever at the time. And, and you send it to all the, so you can get these like forms for state houses and you just, you just, I mean, le- the left had nothing like it, right? Or, 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 I had nothing or could, like it. And or, 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 or couldn't, and couldn't counter it. I mean, so, you, right. so all of a sudden you have all this, like you have all these, like th- some of them are religious stuff, some of them is anti-environmental stuff or shrinking government and gerrymandering strategies and things. These are things that all of a sudden you figure out a way to, even if you become a minority demographically, you can establish a lot of power in these state houses. And then you kind of, and you sort of talk about how this is, this is sort of how some of this theocratic nationalists kind of, with all, with the constellation of kind of conservative economic and environmental policies, this is how they get a foothold that's, that still we see, right? I mean, it's still, it's still tough to dislodge now. Yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean, you'd be surprised, you know, I was in, um, at the Religion News Writers Association conference in uh, Las Vegas last summer, or maybe late spring, and um, I was on a panel, and um, somebody there on the panel said, how many of you have heard of Project Blitz? And a kind of surprising number of people hadn't. And I'm thinking, these are religion journalists. How can they not know when a God we trust bill shows up in their state legislature? You know, and if you think religion journalists don't know about it, think about politicians. A lot of progressive or, you know, center, left, whatever, you know, politicians don't even know about this. So they waste a lot of energy trying to counter the stuff. And I have written about Project Blitz for the New York Times and also for, in in my book, I centered a a chapter around it in hopes, I mean, probably vain hopes that when these kinds of bills show up in state legislatures, people can just say, well, that's some Project Blitz stuff, you know, and be able to put it in context. Because, Otherwise, you have to reinvent the wheel every single time you're trying to counter it. You know, and this is how Mike Pence really got his start, right? In this kind of movement where they were basically he was kind of a hack lawyer, had a failed election, and was a right wing radio host. And and through things like this Project Blitz and their sister organizations, where they would do this sort of crank out on the mimeograph, crank on the copy machine, state get in state legislatures because Democrats aren't paying attention. And he was like kind of their 
pitch guy. Like they're like, well, he's not like the sharpest tool in the shed, but he's a great pitch guy. And all of a sudden he has this political, he reinvents his political career. because He's just kind of a pitch guy for these project blitz like things where it's like, okay, we're going to just, you know, we might be getting our asses kicked at the national level, but we're going to go at the state and local levels and just kind of run the table. Yeah, the machinery of the Christian right is really fierce. I mean, there are dozens of organizations at the national level uh, serving to, you know, organize and unite all of the thousands of organizations at the state and local level, all of them kind of um, working uh, on the same, toward a, a similar political vision. I mean, I think it's really important to note that this movement is not just evangelicals. It can, includes a kind of variety of um, hyper-conservative, um, both Protestant and non-Protestant religion. Uh, and, you know, they together were their uh, political allies and funders um, are kind of um, united, not by any sort of theological distinctions, but more by a common political vision. Yeah. And I mean, again, you, you, of course, it's, can't be, it can't be that religious because Donald Trump is the icon. I mean, <laughs> how religious can it be? I mean, right. I mean, this is. Well, this exactly. Is, that they see him as a sort of King Cyrus, like sort of fallen right. figure, sort of imperfect figure that's going to, you know, been chosen to do God's will. And the thing about, they, they always refer to him as like, you know, the thing about kings is they don't have to follow the rules. Right. They are a law unto themselves. And that hits home the fact that this is an autocratic authoritarian movement. They don't just want a seat at the table of, you know, the noisy table of American democracy. They want to smash the table and replace it with something else. I predicted a couple of years ago, like I was like, they're going to start calling him King Cyrus. And then somebody was like, oh my really? gosh, I should, I should have written that up. But you like, written long I should have, but, I, I should, but you know, but it's, but it is, but is it, it is interesting though, right? Because part of, uh, David French said something to me once when he was on the show. He said, you know, I think liberals are used to, because they have more access to things like cultural power in media and education and in and, and, and politics, they're not as, as impressed by the glitzy photo in the Oval Office, but he's like the evangelicals are. And he says that, and that, that you can just get taken. And I wonder like how much of it is, is that, you know, uh, oftentimes conservatives would court the evangelical vote, right? But then they behaved mostly like normal presidents, right? But the fact that Trump will, will get in the face of the liberal media, like even just little things where he goes, who are you with? Who are you with at the press conferences? It's so in your face. And I think that... Th- do you think there's something like these people feel championed? Like, wow, he, 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 he's, he's taking up for us. Even if he, even if we couldn't stand his behavior, he's taking up for us. They don't want the nice guy fighting for them. Look, they've cast themselves as a fight to the death. Like an, it's an existential fight between, you know, the chosen and the, the elect and the, and the sort of insider or, or, or versus the outsider, the pure versus the impure. And, you know, they don't want a nice guy fighting for them. They want the, the tough guy who's going to, you know, twist arms and sort of crack heads as long as those heads belong to their uh, their enemies, their political enemies. So I think that they they like that the fact that he's that that type of personality. You know, it's really interesting. Somebody said to me recently, you know, he he sort of models a certain kind of um, you know patriarchalism, I, I suppose, or masculinity. But you know, a, a sort of honorable masculinity used to um, uh, involve the idea of self control. You know, the men were, were thought to be in an earlier time, the ones who could sort of be the masters of their emotion and, and have some kind of self-control. Uh, and uh, and that was sort of, remember, women, we, we were all supposed to be too emotional. To right, be right, right. Lead, right. But Trump is like absolutely um, ruled by his emotions, ruled by his impulses. He shows none of that. 
kind of self-control, none of that sort of dignity that is a has in times past been associated with, um, um, certainly um, with the idea of a, a respectable male leader that I would think that evangelicals might have uh, admired in times past. Yeah, it's interesting because you think of like this revulsion, a lot of the, this kind of movement you're talking about around the figure of like Barack Obama. But I mean, the Obamas, what a model family. I mean, and, and intentional about it. It was, it was, it was, uh, you know, unforgivable. And, and, and intentional about it. I mean, Barack Obama, know. like you know, breakfast and dinner. I mean, he he was this, you know, uh, just was so deliberate about the way he managed his time, which is. Well, he was also a black man, and yeah. there's much less forgiveness. I mean, right. he was held to a much higher standard than he would have been if he had not been a black man. So he had a much narrower area in which he could operate and still be considered acceptable. And, and uh, apparently, you know, the, some number of people still went mad. I mean, look, I think that even though uh, Christian nationalist movement broadly is trying to um, reach out to certain pastors of color, as I've mentioned earlier, um, Trump did win in part because he appeals to the racism of some of his followers. Um, and also, I think the movement does tend to paper over the ways in which hyper-conservative religion and racism can reinforce one another. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because all the demographic stuff I've read is that, like, you know, the Howard Schultz candidacy, you know, the Starbucks guy, is is is, is just a, fa- a fallacy, right? Like the, the idea that oh, there's this big pool, there's this big you know pool for a guy that's socially or gal that's socially liberal and politically economically conservative. Those people all ride the Acela in the Northeast, and there's not many of them, right? The the big groups are people that are liberal socially and liberally uh, and liberal like politically economically. Then there's another big group that's conservative politically. Or conservative socially and conservative politically, they want small government. Then there's this other big group that seem to be more up for grabs that are conservative culturally and politically, but economic or conservative socially, but economically and politically they're liberal. This is the person at the Tea Party rally that has this famous sign: "Government, keep your hands off my Medicare." <laughs> so you know, you know I mean, so so you, I mean, I also want to like take a, a little shot here at the those who claim to be. Um, uh, they believe in small government. I mean, members of this movement seem to like big government when it does what it what they want it to do. Like, <laughs> right, right, or, right. But they don't like it when it does what they don't like. So, or I the subsidies, or the subsidies. I mean, Andrew Cuomo made this point pretty well the other day. I thought, like, he was like, "Look, I, we don't want to tally at this time, but if you're looking, it's the blue states that give to the red states." Like, no, but no, but but I do think, like, you know, it, it's interesting because somebody says. You know, people pull out these instances of people that voted, that su- started supporting Bernie and then voted for Trump. And like, how could that be? I'm like, well, I mean, it doesn't strike me as crazy in that Bernie appealed to their kind of fact that they don't care about like small government expenditures and stuff. And and, and they're hurting. And yet Trump appealed later then to Bernie's. I think there out- might have been another factor at play we well, Trump, <laughs> but Trump appeals to their nationalists, you know, like there are people, there are people that, that, that have these torn and there are people in swing states very often, right? That, that, that have these torn kind of, they're pretty, pretty reactionary on issues of race and, and ideology or immigration and things. Cause we're in the kind of flux you're talking about. And yet they're not opposed to, and also Trump ran as someone who was going to like spend, I mean, he's governed as a pretty traditional, ah, we're not going to give you a but he ran as 
oh, we're not. It's very not Republican. We're not going to reform Medicare. We're not going to. He, no, he kind of ran as he was going to dole out all this money. No, I know. It's ridiculous. I mean, he subscribes to, you know, his people around him subscribe to this sort of far right economic policy that's hollowed out the social safety net. Uh, or, you know, further hollowed out the social safety net. And I think that that's one of the reasons one, I mean, it's sort of a, a tragic effect of, of that kind of extreme ideology. So often it doesn't show itself for quite some time, but in the case of a global pandemic, for instance, the consequences are too stark to ignore. I think the incompet- incompetence of this sort of administration's national response, look, back in January, they should have been sourcing PPE, helping to prepare hospitals to upscale their capabilities, uh, sourcing testing, you know, and starting to like, you know, look very um, in a very realistic way about what, what that horrible, this horrible pandemic is going to do to our country. And, um, and they've, they didn't, they dithered. In fact, the news of the coronavirus was promoted by people like Jerry Falwell Jr. as late as mid-March as hype and overreaction. He said it was an attempt to get Trump. And this is, one of the i think the one of the things the religious right has brought to the republican party is a kind of hyper partisanization it's like everything is a zero sum game it's like you're with us or you're against us um you're in or you're out and so if there's bad news oh gosh it must be an attempt to get our leader our favorite leader rather than oh my gosh there's a global pandemic and it's killing people and it's coming here so we got to prepare for it and it's remarkable, too, because you think about, like, you get back to 1992, George Bush was 20 points down coming out of his convention and won 40 states. So were that many people in America that were thinking, ah, I like to call, ah, maybe not, you know, I mean, like the, the, that. now there's not, you know, that, you're right. I mean, there, there's this hyper tribalization that is like, there's no room for that anymore. I mean, there's no, no one's going to go, no one's going to win by 20 points or win 40 states for the foreseeable future. I mean, it's this kind of wedge, right? You drive you and you try to focus on the, you know, the the, the, the four or 5% that in Wisconsin that doesn't pay attention to the last week of the election, right? <laughs> right? You well, get your pace versus the base. I mean, I think it's worth noting that in our country, 40 to 50% of people don't turn out to vote. So what that means is that you don't need a majority of the country to win an election. All you need is a really coherent and committed uh, and organized minority and get them to vote in disproportionate numbers. I mean, there's this great book that George Barna, the evangelical pollster, wrote, uh, The Day Christians Changed America, as published in 2017, where he notes that the most fervent members of this movement, he calls them sage cons, which stands for like spiritually active, governmentally engaged conservatives. They vote, they turn out the vote 90%. 90%. I've not seen any cohort right. vote in those numbers. So, and they're not motivated, just motivated to vote. They get the vote out in their neighborhoods. They knock, walk door to door, as uh, Steve Bannon called them at uh, one of these national conferences. He called them the hobbits in the Shire. This is in advance of 2016. He's like, the hobbits in the Shire are out there knocking on doors. Uh, but, um, which I thought was a kind of funny, you know. My fear, I, I find Steve Bannon darkly entertaining. I mean, one time he was on the ABC, you know, morning Sunday morning show, and they said, are you telling me Trump has never told a lie to this country? And he said, no. He said, well, there was one. He did call me Sloppy Steve. And I'm like, wow, he can say that with a straight face on national television. It's unbelievable. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Uh, yeah. By the, by the way, uh, Barnett is supposed to do the show next week. Uh, oh, fun. Yeah, so that'd be interesting. Um, so I, I want to ask you this: You're an academic. In I'm not. I don't teach journal. Anywhere. Okay, 
Okay, but uh, you're a journalist. Okay, uh, you're a journalist, but you've got a kind of pedigree. My guess is most of the time. I do. What kind of? You're hanging out. Okay, you got a pedigree. All right, it's better than mine. I mean, okay. Uh, my guess is most of the places you're hanging out among journalists, among people with sophisticated educations, among you know people like. Uh, do, do I mean I'm sure that that you know more evangelicals because of your work than most people in the room. I, I, I think it's I think in order to really understand this country, you need to travel around the country, you know, yeah, and talk yeah. to people in different places and kind of feel the vibe of how things work in other places. That's for sure. I'll have to you, these days, I'm, I'm but, sorry, go on. Do you ever find yourself that like? It, it, just talking with somebody, you know, you're having a glass of wine or something, or you're, t- you're over the kind of hors d'oeuvre thing, and and you just hear something. People kind of stereotyping, or or are you ever like, hey, hey, look, look, I'm, I'm you know, I'm a, a liberal journalist, like, but look, this is, you know, you don't understand what's going on here. I mean, do you find like sometimes translating to groups of people, you know, that like, hey, look, you I don't understand the, the depth yeah. of the movement. Yeah, well, I hate it when people describe, sort of use the term evangelical as shorthand for the movement uh, overall. And I, you know, I've, I've, um, uh, you, can you hear me? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, Sorry, I thought audio went out for a second. Um, the movement includes many evangelicals, but it excludes many evangelicals too. Um, I always thought the eighty five and the fifteen, like the Wheaton College, right. the the the, right. the the Westmont, where I bet my I have friends that teach at Wheaton, and they're like, I couldn't find a faculty member that voted for Donald Trump, like that I know personally. You know, maybe a handful did, but but they're like the fifteen percent of this kind of evangelical movement that that is different than the movement you're talking about. That's true. I mean, and you know that writers don't write, we tend to not write our own headlines, right? A lot of people don't know that. But there have been on a, a couple of occasions where people have um, given a headline to a piece where they use the term evangelical instead of religious right or religious nationalist or something like that. Um, uh, and uh, and that's always a little difficult. So I'm like, well, it's not really, it's not really you know, but e- headlines are their own thing, and because a lot of those people that we've been talking about at Westmont or or Wheaton are are evangelicals, and their evangelicalism would lead them to anti nationalism and multiculturalism. Well, exactly. and- well, I think you know most American Christians think of um, their religion as having something to do with loving their neighbor and yeah. seeing people as human beings first and tribe second. Or, Imagine that, or not at all, <laughs> or 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 helping the poor and the least of these. You know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. people have cited the Bible to advocate for any number of policy positions. Let's look at what happens, was happening during, um, you know, the discussions around slavery. There were people who um, advocated for slavery from pulpits. There were a number of pro-slavery theologians who were believed in America as an authentically Christian nation, chosen by God to serve a certain purpose. There are these sort of hierarchies laid out in the Bible, you know, and this is how God wanted it. And they tended to be biblical, what they thought of as biblical literalists and very strict and absolutist. And then there were people uh, advocating for uh, abolitionism from pulpits. I discuss uh, about a dozen of the abolitionist theologians in my book, people like Charles Grandison Finney and uh, Wilberforce and others. But, you know, as um, Frederick Douglass noted at the time, those pro, uh, like the Aidan Ballou, these these are folks who tended to be poor. I mean, I think uh, the the quote that I pulled 
from Douglas because he said like the $5,000 divides, $5,000 at that time was on the, he said, you know, a lot of money at that time. He said the $5,000 divines are on the side of slavery. He said the abolitionist theologians were arguing from humble pulpits, you know, so they were more the sort of like the poor people, the poor uh, uh, preachers disempowered. And I think a lot of people don't know this, but a lot of the theologians of the North, the sort of you know, well-regarded theologians of the North sort of went along they, with sort of some of these pro-slavery theologians of the South. They had either defended slavery or, or made their peace with it. So I think even within, um, you know, within Christianity, there have always been so many different ways to interpret things. Um, I, I also find, I, I found that at the heart of the Christian tradition, it, when when it really catches fire, it's like, you know, you think of like Luther or somebody that like really his message was, it's not what you do that, that gets you accepted. It's who you are. The love of God mm-hmm. is, is unconditional. And and then right. you love your neighbor because, you know, you realize that God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor does because you're accepted. It's interesting because the kind of movement you're talking about, that it, it seems to mitigate that in extremis in the sense of, no, it is what you do that makes you a good Christian. It's not unconditional acceptance. It's not the fact that maybe you've had deep sins, anxiety, guilt, try, things you can't get over it, but it's, it's, it's washed in the blood of the lamb, as they would say, or something. It's you're, you're, you're clear, you're accepted and you can deal with this. It, it tends to kind of say, well, okay, if you're anxious, the thing isn't to stop and, 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 and receive the accepting love of God. It's to get out there and fight. And if you get that and fight, you, then you'll find your acceptance, right? I mean, it's a kind of strange, it seems like psychologically also to go against everything we know, right? Zero to two, if you get acceptance as a gift, you really develop okay. If you get acceptance as a reward, you really get deleterious effects. And it seems like this kind of Christian nationalist movement you're talking about actually robs people of the one spiritual thing that could give them peace, acceptance, that you, you, that you don't need a faith of the weapons. In fact, when you lay down weapons is when most of us feel the acceptance and love of real spiritual you know, depth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, look, I make no judgments at all about whether the Bible actually has, um, uh, you know, about its doctrines and the substance of them. But what is clear to me is that there are people who are using the Bible as source of their politics, and they're claiming so many different and mutually contradictory things. And um, also, um, I think, deriving different types of sort of psychological benefits from it. Sometimes I think about religion the way I think about fashion. It's like people can criticize it all they like, but it's sort of part of the human experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you got to figure out what you can wear and feel like yourself, (laughs) right? Do you have have any kind of current religious practice yourself that you do? I'm Jewish and my husband was raised Catholic and we enjoy different sort of, um, you know, aspects of our respective cultures. Well, that's a good religious combination. If you're going to mix religious things into a cocktail, Catholic and Jewish is about as, <laughs> as it gets. So as, as a journalist right now, are you like, uh, are you Corona fatigued? I mean, is it just like Corona? It's all Corona, 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 right? You know what? I'm really into baking my own bread and I really feel for those homeschool moms right now. Oh boy. Well, that's great. That's great. Do you do sourdough? We do. We Excellent. have a, a sourdough, uh, a sourdough starter and we've given him a name. Excellent. Uh, you should name your sourdough. That's what they say. You should name your yeah, starter. Give him a name. Yep. He eats lots of flour every day. It's really unfair. <laughs> they, no, you have to keep them. You have to keep feeding them. Otherwise they die. Right, they'll die. Right, right, right. But that's a great, I mean, sourdough, people don't know. It's like all the sort of anti-bread sort of stuff in the culture. So much of it is around the processes. But sourdough is pretty simple, right? It's just kind of. I know. Makes yeah, absolutely it, delicious bread. Yeah. 
Catherine, you've written a great book and you're a delightful conversationalist. I really appreciate you making the time to talk with me about it. It's really a pleasure to speak with you. This is a lot of fun to talk with you today. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.